This morning we are going to be, obviously, in light of the text, um, this entire message uh, is going to be about the cup and the bread. And so if you do not have it, I promise you it's okay, but you need to go get it. And so get it now, um, because at the, the close of this message, as we reflect upon it, we will be partaking it together. And so it is available at the back of the room. I want to encourage you to get that now. <clears throat> so this morning, what we are doing is we are looking at um, what the CSB, which is the translation that we're using, um, labels as the first Lord's Supper, which is a little bit strange to me. I have to admit that when I was looking at that, I thought to myself, huh, I don't know if I've ever called it that before, the first Lord's Supper. We usually call it what? The Last Supper. And the reason why, obviously, is because it's the last time that uh, Jesus and his disciples are going to eat together. And so the power of this moment, the symbolic uh, gesture at this moment, the real events that are about to take place at this moment has a bit of this last kind of a feeling. Indeed, we are actually looking at this particular text because we are in the final week of Jesus' life. And we're going through a series in which we are looking at what Jesus did. So those things are important for us. They're important for us to understand what is happening. And so maybe, maybe there's something valuable and something even important for us to see this, not just as the last supper, i.e. the last time that Jesus and his disciples are going to be together. And what was it like on that last night? I don't know if you're kind of a sentimental person that loves to, just as you're walking through life, being prepared for the last. I remember the last time we, we met with our sons before they got married, the last time that we kind of gathered uh, with our sons before they left for college. Um, I love those last type moments. And, uh, and my wife would say that I, I get a little weird during those moments. I don't just get sentimental. I get a little bit off during those moments. But, but I am. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm that way. I'm kind of wired up that way. And here we have this last moment where Jesus and his disciples are coming together. And, and, and yet when you look at it, it's, it's like there's more going on. It's like there's more happening. Um, I grew up in this tradition of faith in which we, on a weekly basis, not quarterly, not monthly, not yearly, but on a weekly basis, we gather around the table, so to speak. We remember, we hold in our hands the cup, and, and now we have cups. And we have, hold in our hands the, the cup and the bread, and we remember on a weekly basis what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. And, and today, in light of the fact that we are looking at this because of the time of the year that we are in, getting ready for Easter, as we kind of unfold over the next few weeks, looking at the events of Jesus Christ and what he did, what he accomplished, just felt that it was important that we understand Matthew chapter 26 and its corresponding texts in the other gospels in light of God's plan through history. We, we need to see, um, because we're on, this, we're on this side of the cross, we need to see what the disciples couldn't see on that last night. I mean, Jesus would tell them over and over and over again. Jesus would try to help them have a, have, a, have a better and a deeper insight into who he was and to what he was accomplishing and what he was doing. And the gospel writers have no problem admitting, and we didn't get it. We couldn't understand it. And, and I think one of the problems with that is because many of us who are kind of stuck looking at the world, the way that most people look at the world is that it just kind of goes on and on and on. Like this is just kind of a wash, rinse, repeat kind of a scenario, 
right? History has a cyclical kind of, and, and, and there are a lot of even Christian people that have that view of the world. Yeah, this is just the way it is. It's always been this way. It'll always be this way. I, I would argue that, that the Lord's Supper actually gives us a better way of understanding God and a better way of understanding God's plan and God's purpose. And we actually have, as we look at the grand narrative of God and his work in the world, we don't just have, and the same things happen over and over and over again. We're not really getting anywhere. I would even argue that a lot of the, the deep frustration and a lot of the deep disillusionment that exists in our world today is because even within the church, we have a little bit of this, yeah, it's always going to be this way. It's always been this way. No, the Bible doesn't speak like that. The Bible actually gives us an alternative way of looking at, in fact, human history. And so Jesus on this night isn't just remembering, but is in fact saying all of what God has been doing finds something very unique and something very purposeful, and I would even say something very final in what is being accomplished here. So before we can eat and drink, I think it's good that we see not only what Jesus Christ is doing, but how that fits into God's plan so that we can best appreciate, so that we can best worship, so that we can best, when we leave this place, live, not in some kind of a cycle of history, but we can actually live from what God has done and what God has with deep finality accomplished at the cross. And then resurrection and ascension of his Messiah, of his anointed one, of Jesus. As I heard twice already, um, did you, did you get it? he's your Savior, he's also your Lord, right? Did you hear that kind of a couple of times for our new sister and brother? He is our Savior and he is our Lord. And so I thought it would be good for us this morning to just go back and, and to begin to kind of trace the hand of God so that we can better understand what's happening when Jesus talks about um, his sacrifice on that night that he was betrayed. And, and so I, I don't even have it on the screen this morning. You're going to have to pull it up in your Bibles. Uh, look it up in your Bibles here, pages, flip. You can look it up on your phone. Um, Genesis chapter 12. Um, I, I could go earlier in, in some ways, but I, I want you to see that the way that um, the way that God works, it has a sense of purpose. And that's why it's even good to stop and to reflect on the fact that God knows. And he's always known. And he's always had a purpose. That he's not going through time like you and I are. He's not going through circumstances where he's reactionary. But, and, and, and God just isn't really, he doesn't have like deep, um, for, uh, kind of like this ability to see into, he knows and so there's a purposefulness that we see in the scriptures. And in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says this. And the Lord, that's Yahweh's name there. L-O-R-D in capitals is Yahweh's name. And Yahweh said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And, and by the way, that, that land that he is going to show him and that he is going to give him is the land in which the Messiah will be born. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. That great nation, by the way, um, is that the nation from which God's anointed one, God's Messiah, is going to be born. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Did you see it? Like, that's... 
That's what God's getting at. That's the, 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 the finality or the fullness of this. When, when Jesus is going to be talking about that night, and, and again, the disciples are just, hear me, they're not clueless. They just, they don't fully understand or appreciate. Can we just kind of acknowledge that with, with some sense of humility that we don't either? They don't fully understand that, that Jesus is reaching back into history and he is, he is bringing to completion, to fulfillment. That's a word that Matthew's gospel loves. And Jesus did this, thus to fulfill what was written in the scriptures. Thus to bring to an end, to, to bring to a completion what God has promised. And God said, I'm going to give you a land. And he gave them a land. And I'm going to give you a, a great name. And I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm make your name great. And you're going to become this nation. And, uh, and, and I'm going to bless all people. All people. Because why? Because God's not just about Abram. And he's not just about the Jewish people. I would even say this. He's not even just about people. He's about himself. That's why he made the world and everything in it. And the world rebelled against him. And God said, but in light of my great love. And in light of my great mercy. In light of my goodness. I will not let you go. And I will bring I will bring my people, which is of all the nations, back to me. And, and, and so what you and I see there in Genesis chapter 12 finds its completion. And all, think about this, what the text said in Matthew 26, and all the people, all the people will be blessed. And God says, yeah, this... This isn't just some kind of an end of time type thing. This isn't random. History just doesn't keep going on and on and on and on and on. No, there is a time in which God says, and I, here's what God says. It is finished. It is finished. It is complete. That's what you and I are going to celebrate in a moment. Here's another great text. Genesis chapter 22, 10 chapters later. Same gentleman, but uh, things have changed. Uh, he's, he's not, he doesn't have like a lot of descendants, but he has at least two, but only one of them is known as a son of promise. And, and God says to Abram, I, Abraham, I want, what I want you to do is I, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, for those of us that know the story, and there's no way to unknow the story that we know, we, we begin to pick up on this and go, okay, I see where you're going with this, right? It's, it's a little bit of one of those um, C.S. Lewis uh, Aslan moments, right? Do you remember those? The Aslan moments? Do you remember when, when you began to kind of trace this through? I mean, I, I didn't really read the books growing up, but it was such a joy to read them to our children. And we, we didn't read them in the way that they were written. We read them in the way in which they came, kind of in that little uh, catalog of books. So you begin with the magician's nephew, and we didn't say, and by the way, children, I want you to pick up on the allegorical nature in which this literature is being written. And I would like for each of you to think, right? Max, you were probably like two or three years old at the time. Really? I didn't do that. I just read them. Hey, want to hear a cool story? Yeah, Dad, I want to hear a cool story. And we read about a magician's nephew. And in that second book, it was a, it was a fun experience because, um, again, we haven't said anything. We're driving back. I'll never forget the moment. We're driving back from Kansas City. I'm driving. Andrea's reading. The kids are listening. And as they're listening and they're hearing about Aslan being sacrificed on the stone table, even though there was no cross, um, one of our sons screamed out, okay, wait a second, I, I see where you're going with this. And this light bulb moment, 
And honestly, I think what C.S. Lewis is doing there is not just trying to pick up on like a literary device. What he is doing is actually just picking up a way in which we see how God works in Scripture, right? Have you, ever, have you ever read through a Scripture, like one that was long before the time of Jesus, and you went, oh, that's why we get the idea of like the cycles in history, because these things aren't just doomed to repeat themselves. No, in fact, the hand of God is guiding them to completion. See the difference? We're not just trapped in some kind of cycle. No, the Bible says there is a master writer. There is someone that is bringing these things together. And so my my son says, I think Aslan is Jesus, Dad. And then I got to pretend I'm shocked, right? We're all got to pretend we're shocked. I think Aslan is Jesus. You have those moments sometimes. And maybe you don't get one in Genesis 12, but I'm sure you find one in Genesis chapter 22. Look at Genesis chapter 22. You probably know the story. Um, God tells Abram to take his son, and they march down to Mount Moriah, which most likely is the place in which the temple is later going to be built, where all the sacrifices are going to be offered. Still one of my favorite moments every time we go to Israel is to stand on the south part of the city, and we come up over a hill, most likely, where Abraham and Isaac most likely kind of walked up, and then you see the temple area. And every time we start our tours that way, I just have to think what would have been like. But look, look at what Abraham, look at, look at how this encounter unfolds. Um, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Your son, your only son, the one that you love. And, and then it says in, in, uh, in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He laid his son Isaac in his hand. He took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. But then Isaac spoke up to his father Abraham and said, My father, he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself, and that's kind of in the emphatic, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. Okay, I see where you're going with this. And, and then jump down to verse, uh, verse 15. So once God sees that Abraham will not withhold his son, his only son, his only son Isaac, whom he loves. Verse 15, and then the angel of the Lord, Yahweh's name there again, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing, and then you have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you. He re- re- recites, he repeats what he said in chapter 12. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because you have obeyed my command. Okay, I, I see where you're going with this. And, and, and honestly, the only reason why we see where we're going with this was because there was a night, the night on which Jesus was betrayed, in which he said, all of this points to me. And I am here to accomplish. I am here to fulfill. I am here not to be caught up in a cycle, but I'm here to finish the, the work that my father started I'm here to bring it to completion so that you can now fully enjoy what God so deeply desires for his people to enjoy, the fullness of himself. 
redeemed and restored. One other text that I want to look at, um, and indeed there are numerous ones throughout the Old Testament, but the other one that just obviously brings like a special moment to this moment is Exodus chapter 12. So turn to Exodus chapter 12. And, and this, this is usually the one that we think of, right? This is the one that as a staff we went over this last Monday together. We said, let's take a look at um, the, the first Passover, if Jesus is kind of bringing things to a close, the last Passover, let's go back and take a look at the, at the first one. And in Exodus chapter 12, we actually see God preparing his people um, for their future, for their new future. Again, God has promised, and we see it in Genesis 12. It comes before that, but we see it in Genesis 12. We see it in Genesis 22, that God says, I, I, see, I see who you are. I see you in the reality of who you are. I see you as broken. I see you living in rebellion against me. I see you um, oppressed. I see you in chains. Like I see you for who, who you truly are. In Exodus 3, when God calls Moses um, from being a shepherd to being his spokesman to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, hey, and I, I need you to go rescue my people. Go get them. You can do this. I believe in you, Moses. He says this, I want you to go, for indeed I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt, and their cries have reached even me, and I have come down, and I will rescue them, therefore go. So I, I know if we want to do like a children's movie, we'll have Moses as the hero, but Exodus 3 does not give us that that, 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 that framework or that, that way of looking at it. No, no, no. I have seen the misery of my people who are enslaved. I have seen the misery of my people who are, um, uh, who are being oppressed. I know their hardship, and this has always been my plan. And so now I have come down. I and myself am going to rescue them, and I, I need you to go to be my spokesperson. And in Genesis chapter 12, it's time for the people to go. And God says, this moment is an important moment, not because it's just going to be important for you, but it's going to be important for this nation. It's going to be important for you to have a, a better understanding of who I am. Do you realize that God gives us gifts of very special moments, of real tangible things to point to him, that remind us of a purpose and a plan that God has that if we didn't have him, we wouldn't fully understand who he is. And, and God knows that his people will, 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 will quickly, quickly forget. I mean, they're already going to struggle with this, but they will quickly, quickly forget unless they have something very real and something very tangible to, to slow them down, to stop them and say, no, 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 just don't, don't, don't quickly eat and drink. I need you to stop and I need you to remember me. God says, yeah, you're, you're about to be freed from this place. You're about to experience liberation from your oppressors. And you will be let out so that you can truly worship me, which is the reason why God wants them to be set free, so that you can go and you can worship me. And you, you can't worship me here. You can't worship me enslaved. You can't worship me enchained. Not, not the way I want you to, not the way that I ultimately desire for you to. And, and God says, and now my judgment is coming. And I am going to judge. And in light of who I am, I am going to judge, think about this, all who are not protected by me. And then God gives them this, these, these words of hope and these words of deliverance in which they will make 
bread that is unleavened. And, and then they will take, and, and Moses makes it very, very clear, you need to take either a lamb or a goat, but it must be um, unblemished and a year old. And then at twilight, I want you to sacrifice that animal. Foreshadowing a statement that without the shedding of blood, indeed, there is no forgiveness. And you're going, okay, I see, I, I kind of see where, now I see. And then I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it on either sides of the door. And then I want you to put it across the lintel, the top piece. And the blood of that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice will be assigned to me so that when I come down and I judge and I strike down the firstborn in all of Egypt. And then it lists like all the firstborns in which the Lord himself will take in righteous judgment, I will look over you. He doesn't say, and you know what? You're my, you're my peeps. Like I got you guys covered and I, I hate Egyptians. And so this is why I'm doing this. No, no, no. The Lord himself is coming down. And if you are not covered, if you do not find yourself under the protection, right? You're getting that Aslan moment, right? You know this. And those who are covered by the blood of the lamb, of the perfect sacrifice, I will, in fact, the name of the feast is called what? I will pass over you. And that's exactly what happens. And, and those families who are covered by the blood hear the cries of the Egyptians and the Lord himself, righteous in judgment, passes over those families who have been, in fact, covered by the blood, and there is not judgment upon them. Wow, that, that kind of, that's, that's a good thing. We should probably remember that, right? We should remember that. What's interesting is we, we, we actually know that they didn't do a good job remembering that. But by the time we get to Jesus, they are doing a pretty good job remembering that. And so what we actually see, and this is what all the Gospels, they all, they all converge here at this point. I find it fascinating that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John felt a degree of, under the Spirit's direction, hear me, under the Spirit's direction, felt a liberty to start the story of Jesus almost wherever they wanted. Some begin with angels appearing, others like a prophet speaking, like one out of the desert Prepare the way of the Lord. One wants to go all the way back to like Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Like it seems like there was a relative freedom. It, it, it seems like there was even under the Spirit's direction a relative freedom to kind of look at the different stories of Jesus. Only one talks about the Good Samaritan. Only one talks about the Samaritan woman. Only one tells certain parables or certain stories. It's like... And this series is the gospel of Jesus, what the Son of God did. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John feel a relative under the Spirit's direction, uh, freedom to describe different things that he did. And indeed, you and I have uh, different aspects of Jesus' life and his ministry in which really resonates with us, right? We, we all have parts of Jesus' uh, encounters with people or the things that Jesus did that really, man, that, that really speaks to me. And by the way, that's okay. I do too. Jesus, the teacher, 
yeah, like, I mean, that is, it's so important to, to know things, and it's so important to share things with others. We really need to know things. And, and we love to talk about, like, like, the creativity of Jesus. Like, notice just how the many different ways in which, it's like, he really knows his audience. He's doing great audience analysis, and he's speaking to them, and he's kind of starting with experiences that they would know and that they would understand. If you notice that he tells the parable, and he uses, like, agricultural ideas and images that they would know, and he's really resonating with them. You notice how Jesus teaches? And, and there are some of us that are just like, wow, that, that is so awesome. I'm so glad, glad that the Son of God is a, is a teacher. And then others are like, no, what, what really this is all about is just the compassion and the love that Jesus shows. The fact that he, uh, I know John says that he had to go through, but he really could have gone around. But in the end, he meets this woman who most likely has spent most of her time being ignored and he stops and he speaks with her and he reveals himself to her. And, and lepers are, are, are touched. Like that's, that's really what Jesus is. I know he's a teacher, but what he really is, and this is what the world really needs, people of compassion who love and care for one another. And Jesus is modeling that. And, and we, need to, we need to model that. That's what's missing that's what, that's what people don't get. That's what Jesus came to do, was to show compassion. No, no, what, I, what I really love about Jesus is that I love the fact that he, um, he, he is willing to, like, to confront, um, especially like r- religious pride and arrogance. Like What I love about Jesus is he's not just a teacher, but he's like a, a truth teller. He's more like a prophet. And he really comes, and if you notice, he lets the bad guys have it. And I love that aspect of Jesus. And whenever I get an opportunity to, to preach a text, I love it. I love it when he goes after the Pharisees. And I love it when he goes even after his own disciples. And he even says to Peter, oh, you have such small faith. And he's willing to call everybody out. Like, that's what we need. Like, in this world that is broken and injustice is everywhere, what I love about Jesus is he comes as this, um, this prophet. And he'll confront Pilate. And he'll confront everyone. I mean, that's what Jesus is about. And by the way, all of those things, I would argue, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have stories about the wonderful examples of Jesus and the many things that he did. And we've highlighted many of them in this series. But the Gospels all make a rather, um, uh, I would even say it's like they're, they're, they're designed and written this way, but we're going to converge on this. We're going to converge on this, that on the final week, the week that Jesus was betrayed by one of the 12. This is what happened. And it's, it's like they all go, um, yeah, I don't know how you're going to get there, but we'll, we'll meet you on that night. Truly, even, even that night, John has a whole bunch of stuff. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of stay similarly, but John comes in a completely different direction. But we all end up here at this meal together. We all come to this meal. Why? Because... I mean, I'm just going to say it. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've listened, and, and, and Jesus' words are amazing, and I almost need to remind myself that they're amazing because I've seen some pretty amazing teachers in my life, like amazing teachers in my life who, through the use of their gifts and abilities, just really mesmerize me, and I have been, in, I have been blessed by profound teaching. And I've been, I've been incredibly encouraged and blessed through what my eyes have seen and stories that I have read of, of deep compassion. 
And, and I know what it is like, and I'm very, very grateful for those women and men throughout history who stand up against and really kind of speak the truth. So I've got tons of examples. Don't you? How many of you have an example of a good teacher? How many of you have an example of a, of, a, of a good compassion? How many of you have an example of, of somebody that's going to stand up and, and oppose broken world? They can't do that. They can't do that. No, in the end, there really is, is nothing that teaching or compassion or prophetic utterances can do. Isaiah couldn't do it for you. John the Baptist couldn't do it for you. Peter, Paul, like none of them could do it for you. But Jesus gathers his disciples, and I've eagerly, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you because what is about to happen is fundamentally different than anything else I've ever done. I'm not here to, um, to teach you something, although you'll learn. And I'm not here to just demonstrate compassion, although I think you'll feel my love. And I'm not here to confront, but confrontation is the only way in which redemption and restoration is possible. But I'm here to give you something. That God has planned from the very beginning, and if you can see it, you can just trace the hand of God in Genesis, Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and Genesis 22 and Exodus 12 and 1 Kings 19, and you see it. And that's why Jesus says at the first Lord's Supper, and as they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat it. He doesn't say, in this way we remember the Passover. You know, everything converges here. Take and eat this. This is not just unleavened bread. This is my body. Like everything before this moment was, was just a reminder looking backwards. But now I need you to look at me. The bread that you now hold which I gave you, is in fact my body. And, and the Passover was just meant to point you to this particular moment. And this particular moment is what God planned from the very beginning. The redemption and the restoration of all peoples to himself. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is... It's not, this is the third cup of the Passover, the cup, and then kind of read a text from Exodus, which is what they would have done. But no, Jesus, hear me, he doesn't just change all that. He just doesn't reinterpret it. Jesus accomplishes it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Genesis 12, 3. Genesis 22, 16, 17. Which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. It, it's interesting that Matthew includes that. For the forgiveness of sins. He's the only one that does that. No one else includes that. But, but Jesus says it. And Matthew includes it here. And, and maybe I know why actually. Because when Matthew started his story. With an angel appearing to the mother of Jesus. And the angel said. And you will give him the name. What? Yeshua. Jesus meaning Yahweh saves, because he will in fact save 
his people, and not just his people, but God's people, he will save his people from their sins. Because this was God's plan and God's purpose. And so this morning you and I have an opportunity to remember what Jesus Christ accomplished. On the cross he says, it is finished. That's how he describes the ending of his life. It is finished. And in this meal he reminds them of this thing that he has actually done. See, we're not stuck in a loop in history. But no, Jesus Christ has come and once and for all proven victorious over death, proven victorious over sin, and not just for his disciples, but for each and every one of us. And so what you and I are doing, hear me, there is a look back when we do. We look back and we see what Jesus Christ did and we can trace the hand of God and then we find ourselves, right? Our sin. Our sin. We also look forward. Because honestly, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink again from, 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 on now, from now on. I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And so you and I will actually have an opportunity to look forward as well. So before we eat this, we will look back and say thank you to God for all that he has done and for his character and nature. And we look forward to what God is going to do. Um, wipe our, 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 our uh, tear-stained eyes and, and, and the presence with him will be, will be fulfilled and it will be real and it will be true because there will be no division between us and God because, in fact, our sins have been covered through what Jesus Christ did that no lamb could do. No lamb could do. And then we also look around and realize this really isn't about me. It's, it's even really not about us, but it is about the people that God has chosen from the very beginning of this wonderful book. Wow, is God not good? That wasn't rhetorical. Is God not good? And do you realize what Jesus Christ has accomplished? Let us take the bread and therefore eat. And let us take the cup and therefore drink.